Welcome to Politics in Question, a podcast about how our political institutions are failing us and ideas for fixing them. I'm James Walner, a senior fellow at the R Street Institute. I'm Julia Azari. I'm an associate professor of political science at Marquette University. And I'm Lee Drutman, a senior fellow at New America. Well, welcome back, guys. We have a lot to talk about today. In fact, there's. it seems like every week there's more and more stuff to talk about, more and more stuff that raises deep questions about our political system, about our politics, and about how we make collective decisions in this nation of ours. But one of the things that I wanted to talk about today is that who's responsible for disciplining bad behavior when we find it in our government? And we have lots of examples of this. We've got an impeachment trial, the second impeachment trial of Donald Trump, the former president that's um, underway in the Senate. There is an effort to censure Senator Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley over um, their involvement with uh, events on January 6th and or their alleged involvement in terms of uh, forcing votes on the uh, legitimacy of electors. And then we have Marjorie Taylor Greene, a representative from Georgia who was recently stripped of her committee seats in the House of Representatives by a vote on the floor. And she lost, I believe it's like a budget and education committee seats. And so these are all, they're all related in a way, but they're also very different. And I think that they raise a lot of questions about who we should look to, to be responsible for disciplining bad behavior. And we have, you know, the different options are voters, you have parties, and you have institutions. And so what I was hoping we could do today is is work through some of these. And let's, maybe let's start with Trump and let's go from there. But what do you think? And maybe, Lee, let's start with you. I mean, what do you think about Trump, the second impeachment trial, and the larger issue of, of disciplining uh, our chief executives and presidents? Well, I think he should absolutely be convicted. Uh, but I, I think there's also a larger question here, and this is something that we discussed in more detail on our impeachment episode. But you know, how do you discipline chief executives in a system where there's fixed terms and two parties? And in order to convict a, a president of impeachment, you need to pass a very high bar, uh, two thirds. And so we're now on our 46th president, and we have had not a single impeachment conviction, although we've had some pretty bad presidents. Few have died in office, few have been assassinated. One has resigned, but we've never had a successfully impeached uh, and convicted president. So it feels to me that there's something fundamentally wrong with how we uh, discipline chief executives, the president, in our political system. Now, in a, in a more parliamentary system, it's much easier to remove a prime minister. You just have a vote of no confidence if that person is, you know, corrupt or, you know, just incompetent. Uh, but we don't have a we have a separation of powers system with the rigidity of fixed terms is something that Juan Linz warned about in his famous Perils of Presidentialism. Uh, and, and so, like, I, I think the, the impeachment process is fundamentally broken. Yeah. So I, I kind of I agree with Lee and I want to add a couple things here about how we might think about this in institutional terms, because, I mean, I do think that 
Lee is right that fundamentally different formal institutions would would create a different situation. But I also think that the situation that we have in which impeachment really hasn't in any way functioned as as designed um, comes out of both our sort of informal expectations and also the evolution of the party system. I mean, I think that this is, and I, was, I was reading this, there's a 2020 book on presidential impeachment um, published by SUNY Press that we can put in the show notes. I was, I was reading it last night and I'm actually working on a project on the linkages between impeachment and the political system. So I've been thinking about this, not just in, in terms of this week, but in bigger terms. And, you know, it, it is striking. It is striking that impeachment has been such a partisan process and not successful in removing a president from office in the kind of after the late 20th century and beyond that has become more frequent and yet still, you know, not really not a successful constitutional process. But it's also striking, it's equally striking that it was used so infrequently prior to that. So we actually have two, I think, two separate problems when we think about how impeachment hasn't hasn't really worked. Um, and I think that part of what was going on prior to the 1970s and to the Nixon, I refer to that as sort of an impeachment crisis, as it obviously wasn't a full impeachment process. What was going on prior to that was not a perfect situation by any stretch of the imagination in, you know, in presidential politics. But I do think that one thing that happened there was an intra-party politics, not, not Congress per se, um, and not other institutions per se, and not even informal norms about presidential behavior, but intra-party politics and the fact that parties were more in charge of presidents and the other way around was actually a really important check on presidential behavior. And if we adopt that framework, it really leads us to a very different place now in a system where we have highly presidentialized parties. And so in that system, we see impeachment becoming more frequent. And I have written about this. I'm going to be, I'm going to be throwing things at the show notes here. Um, I wrote about this about a year ago, about how presidential parties um, lower the cost of impeachment because they, the, the president tends to be kind of a powerful symbol of, of his party. And so the it, when the other party controls Congress, there are very few political costs for them to appear to be kind of going after that president, even if even if it's frivolous, even if it's illegitimate, um, which I think in this case, in the Trump case, is not. But even if it is, there are very few costs, right? Democrats will probably support congressional Democrats going after Trump for whatever. Um, and so it does lower the cost of impeachment. But at the same time, that party's sorting and loyalty makes it less likely that the president will be convicted regardless of what has been done, what has happened, uh, what that president is, is standing accused of. So it's, I think there's actually several threads to pull in terms of how this has developed over time and why the impeachment process hasn't worked as, as design. And the third thing I would add though, has to do with the voters and the role that elections have been kind of made to play over the course of time in our system. Elections have become so central and so focal in the in the political system that there's kind of like, you know, we just ask them to do a lot of work. And this was the case 
in Trump's first impeachment, there was a lot of discourse around like this is trying to undo the results of the election and trying to reject the results of the election. One thing I think is is actually key to think about there is that this was also a line that Nixon used in the 1970s during Watergate was this sort of, you know, people, the reason this is happening is that people re- refuse to accept the 1972 mandate. And that's you know, it's all well and good to interpret the meaning of elections and to be focused on the will of the people. But if if there can never be a kind of institutional check on the result of an election, then you can't hold any elected officials accountable. And that I think is that I think is a sort of norm in our politics that has gotten out of control, this norm that that elections are just going to do all this deciding work. It's just asking a lot. It's not that the will of the people, it's not that the people don't have a good collective sense. It's not that the will of the people is not important. It's just that our system is designed so that every piece of it has a certain check on the others. And, you know, so when you have, forgive the expression, when you have this sort of trump card of the election, that doesn't work in that system. And then furthermore, we see that breakdown really significantly when the the issue at hand is actually the election itself, as it was in in this sort of ongoing set of problems in 2020 and 2021. So that's how I see the institutional picture. I obviously have uh, plenty to say about the the trial this week itself. We're, we're recording this on uh, the morning of February 12th. So we're all, I think, pretty steeped in impeachment theater. And I use theater in a in a positive sense. But I'll hand it back to you, James. Yeah, actually, I just want to pick up on two things you you said there, Julia. First is this kind of paradox of impeachment, which is on the one hand the conditions that make impeachment more likely, which is you know highly polarized parties in which there's no political cost for for one party to proceed with impeachment, are precisely the conditions that make conviction much less likely, which is a party that's deeply loyal to the president and and deeply invested in the reputation of the president, apparently, even if that president is no longer in office, as long as that president is popular with the voters of the party. Second thing is the idea of elections as remedies to impeachment, which I think has a certain irony with the, related to the fact that the uh, Nixon potential impeachment, although he resigned before it was related to election meddling, both of Trump's impeachments were related with election related to election meddling that you know, I mean, what he was trying to do in the first impeachment was he was trying to pressure a foreign leader into basically drumming up a, a fall uh, an investigation into his political rival. I mean, we have to remember that it, that that case was all about, uh, you know, Trump trying to, to damage Biden. And then this current impeachment is about Trump not accepting the results of the election and inciting a violent mob to try to overturn the election. So if elections are supposed to be the remedy on bad behavior and what presidents do that's impeachable is trying to meddle in elections, also suggests something fundamentally broken about how we think about impeachment. I mean, I would agree with that. I just want to jump back in quickly. But I think that this is sort of like, I realize this is an unorthodox way to think about what happened over like between November and January in terms of questioning the results of the election. And there isn't really, there's not really an informal norm scenario in, under which that was good or had lower stakes, but it had higher stakes 
because everything is sort of like everything is hinging on that election, right? If if you've made the election the sort of fulcrum of of every single thing, then that's you know then then so much is is at stake in the in the course of a presidential election so much more than already is at stake in choosing the the chief executive which is which is a huge issue and i think that's sort of the the backdrop of this whole process was not just about trying to actually change the result which was always a long shot but trying to delegitimize the result um and kind of you know what that would what that would take away potentially from a Biden presidency if you convinced enough people the result was was illegitimate that's probably a whole other podcast so i'll i'll shut up now podcast within a podcast it's like we're in, in that movie inception now now can you do james can you do a podcast within a podcast within a podcast you all are out of control that's this morning well there's out nothing that says there's nothing that says we can't so there we go um <laughs> No, I think I want to yeah pick up on this, and I think impeachment. A lot of what you two have just mentioned here, and it's really gotten me thinking. And there's some really interesting ideas here. And Julia, I think you're absolutely right in terms of the theater. And let's just looking at this specific trial. One thing that we can take away immediately is that the Democrats learned their lesson from the first impeachment. It seems Adam Schiff has an excellent audible narration voice, I think. But the case that they presented, while it may be compelling to some and not compelling to others, it was dry. It was very detailed. It was very legalistic. The videos and the emotional appeals of the of the House managers in this trial seem to be way beyond um, what they were doing in the first trial in terms of they're well-produced, they're theatrical. And I mean that in a good sense. I'm not trying to dismiss them. So it looks like they have, the House is approaching this in a much more savvy way this time around. But I want to kind of step back from this particular trial, though. I want to ask everyone to set aside their views of Trump for a minute, however hard that may be, because I want to get at the core issue here. And I think as it relates to impeachments, as it relates to uh how we use impeachment to, to discipline bad behavior in government and how it interacts with elections, with the party system and with our institutions. And, you know, the first question I have is, you know, can we can we do this? I think it bears asking that question, maybe not dwelling on it for too long. But, you know, this is a controversial thing that's happening in part because Trump is no longer president. Right. The House votes to impeach Trump when he is still president. He's still in office, but it waits until after he leaves office to deliver those his, its article of impeachment to the Senate that will then try the president. And so I think that the, this trial is very interesting to me because it raises the question of whether the Senate can convict someone who is no longer in office. Right. And this it brings up this idea. In, and I do I think it's important to also underscore the point that, at least in my mind, there is a distinction between trial and conviction. And I think that the Senate absolutely has every constitutional power and right to have a trial. In fact, it has to, because whenever the House passes an article or articles of impeachment, the Senate has to consider them. And when the Senate considers them, it organizes itself in a trial setting. It has to have a trial of some sort, some sort of proceedings that we call a trial to figure out if it wants to dismiss the articles, if it wants to convict, or if it wants to acquit, right? I think what the question here is whether or not because the person, the impeached official, in this case, Donald Trump, is no longer in office, does that limit the range of options that the Senate has in terms of disposing of that article 
at the end of the trial. And there's there are a lot of smart people, very smart people. I'll put um, uh, Brian Colt. He's a law professor at Michigan State. I will, will put his piece in the uh, show notes as well. And, and maybe in the future, we'll have him on. He's a great, great uh, scholar. I think he's really interested in taking ideas and trying to explore them. And he argues that you absolutely can do this. I, I take a different view. But I think that that's an important question that we ought to keep firmly planted in our minds. The second question is, what do we want to accomplish by impeachment, right? Are we trying to punish, to discipline, which I think is what our kind of question assumes, our organizing question for the show, or are we using it as a way to protect the people from government using its powers and uh, corrupting its powers and using them against the people? Right. And, and the way I typically look at impeachment is that it's, it's a tool that the people give their elected representatives to use against officials in government or the judiciary in between elections. And it, it, it is it, it's there's weaknesses to it. There's limitations to it, obviously, but it, it's uh, it's complementary to their power to vote people out of office. And it becomes especially important when you, the president becomes eligible for more than one term, because now if you have a president who uses uh, corrupting, uh, corrupts the process to win re-election, all of a sudden it neutralizes in a way, potentially, the electoral aspect of things. And it makes it very important that you have some way to discipline that president separate from elections. Now, of course, as you both have pointed out, the party system complicates that in a major way. But, you know, that's it's an important, that first question, can we do this? The second question, what do we want to accomplish by it? And then I think the next question I have is, is impeachment the best tool to achieve this, right? Is it the best tool if we want to punish? Is impeachment the best way to punish? Or are there alternatives? And, you know, for instance, the criminal justice system is still there. The Constitution makes very clear that people are still subject to the criminal justice system. One reason why the Senate was given um, jurisdiction over trials instead of the Supreme Court at the end of the Constitutional Convention was because that the, the framers were very concerned that you would have someone who would be impeached in the Supreme Court, but then as a private citizen, they would have a criminal proceeding against them that the court would ultimately have some sort of role in as well. And that that would kind of undermine their Article Three jury trial protections, their Sixth Amendment protections. Obviously, Sixth Amendment wasn't at the convention, but it was still very much in their minds. And so that's, you know, it, it, we do have a criminal process. And if you look at what's happening in Georgia right now with Trump and his, his infamous call to the Secretary of State saying, just give me, I just need like 11,000 more votes or however many more votes he needed. He's like, just come on, find them for me, Right. That there's there's now they're either they have or they're considering pressing charges against Trump. And last time I checked, the, the Democrats accused Trump of sedition and insurrection. Well, those things are I, I believe those things are crimes. I believe those things are crimes. And so, if our goal is to punish people, it seems to me that it's a. I also think it's much scarier to spend some time or your life behind bars and pay gigantic fines than it is to have to be removed from an office you no longer occupy and then to not be allowed to be nominated for the assistant under deputy secretary of the interior or something else um, in the future. So I think we have to ask ourselves that, you know, what are we, what are the alternatives based on what we ultimately want to do with impeachment? And then what are the consequences of this? Right. And I think this gets into a lot of the partisanship 
gets into a lot of um, you know, separation of powers is an issue. A lot of the framers were very concerned about the you know, impeachment undermining the president's authority and independence. But again, you have to have some way to punish in between elections. I think it's a cheap signaling device. I mean, if you know in the House that you can impeach someone even after they leave office. So, right, we can even set that question aside for a second because it it's almost like it's it's costless. Why? Because the Senate, you, because of our party system, the stuff that Lee's talked about, you, it's virtually impossible to convict that person in the Senate. So what do you do? Let's impeach him. Let's impeach Obama. Why not? I mean, you know, we can't be president again, but somebody may make him ambassador to Sweden or something. So, But it's a way for us to say as like Republicans or Democrats that we are with you our base on this symbolic issue. And we're just going to do this because we it's not going to end with any definitive outcome in action, but it allows us to beat our chest, to stand up and to engage in some very cheap signaling. But that, I think, really begins to kind of erode the institutional foundation of our separation of powers. And I think it further exacerbates the dysfunction in our system. But I, don't know, I, mean, I just threw a lot out there. But before we move on to Cruz and Holly, I wanted to see if either one of you had any, if you wanted to add anything else on this or you disagree, you agree. What, what do you think? I want to just jump in um, and note that I think you're your presentation of of what's going on with Trump is very, I mean, and un, for understandable reasons, but it's very Trump centric, um, or not Trump centric, but president centric. It's very centered on the on kind of what happens to the person in question, and I, I think, I mean, that is a product of our system that's so presidentially focused. But what I have taken out of this this week's trial, and I confess, I probably have I have more to say about presidential impeachment than the the Senate process, but. Um, what I have taken from this trial is that this is actually a, a sort of civic event and an attempt to sort of create a civic record of what happened on January 6th to create a kind of civic script that defining that event, which which is especially critical if you put it in historical context. There's been a lot of comparison of this period to, to the Reconstruction period and to the narratives that emerged out of that. And I think that that's, that's been instructive to the people who are managing the impeachment in the Senate is this idea that what, what is actually going to come out of this is not, is, is probably not a conviction of Trump, but it's not really about Trump. It's about kind of defining what happened on January 6th and defining the president's role in that. And even if it doesn't result in a conviction that that might contribute to the historical story the story that we tell ourselves about his presidency and how it ended. And that, I think, is actually the purpose of, of the impeachment trial in a lot of ways is to kind of reassert or examine constitutional principles. And it's less about what happens to the person afterward and whether, you know, as you said, they can be a deputy undersecretary of the interior, which I think I think Trump is safe from that fate one way or the other. But you know, to me, that's really what's what's going on here is it's actually about drawing some lines and creating some broad public narratives about what happened. But what is interesting is that we don't have any expectation that that will that that will actually affect the person who is technically on trial. And so in that sense, we have yet another thing in our politics that is sort of formally about one thing and in reality about another. 
I think you're right. But uh, again, I mean, are there alternatives too? I mean, what are the alternatives that allow us to do the same thing? I mean, you have a censure process that, you know, President Clinton was censured. I mean, you can go down this road in different ways to have that kind of, the, to establish that civic record. And I would just point out with regard to the the late impeachment aspect of this and to the partisanship piece that really links, I think, your, your observations about Reconstruction also with the first impeachment trial. I mean, the Senate has had the two times in the Senate's history when the House impeached someone, there was a resignation and the House did not then ask the Senate to dismiss the charges because the person impeached is no longer in office. Happened to be, incidentally, at like heightened partisan tensions. And the first Senate impeachment trial ever, the first impeachment was William Blunt. He was at the Federal Convention of 1787. He was later a Tennessee uh, senator. He's not necessarily a, a great guy. I mean, he's he's doing a lot of stuff. I'm not defending Blunt by any means. I'm not defending Trump. But what's interesting is the House impeaches him. The Senate expels him the next day. But the House, controlled by a Federalist majority, hoping to use its narrower Federalist majority in the Senate, hopes to send a signal to uh, the emergent Republican Party as well, the Jeffersonian Republicans, that they're in charge and they want to they want to discipline people. And incidentally, this is also at the same time that they're passing the Alien and Sedition Acts. And this is the height of partisan, like of intense partisan warfare in the 1790s. And this is when the Senate goes through and debates whether or not it can convict a former, I mean, someone who's no longer in office. Incidentally, it it decides it can't. And they acquit them. Move forward to the Reconstruction era with Secretary of War Belknap. This is another thing. I mean, Belknap is not a, you know, I'm not defending him. You know, it's not that he didn't do bad things. He did. But the question is, what? What's the motivation behind the majorities in the House and pushing for impeachment? I mean, they impeached him after he actually resigned, incidentally. Uh, and what's the motivation there? And it is a very, um, there's a, a partisan drive, and it could be good. I mean, Reconstruction is good for lots of different reasons, but there's a partisan drive amongst that majority to, to punish an administration that is resistant to, as I understand it, the kind of the agenda that they have for the nation. And it is also during this period at the height of this kind of these parties trying to reassert themselves. And I think this gets to Lee's point. I think this is also a frame, a concern of the framers that impeachment begins to be a cudgel that you then can like beat your opponents over the head with. Sometimes they deserve to, sometimes they don't. But I guess when we then couple that with our tendency today to interpret into and read into the Constitution whatever we want, the limits that were uh, placed on impeachment kind of go out the window at that point. And so, you know, and maybe there are good reasons to go forward. Maybe they're not. Maybe there are, but there could be alternatives. And if they're not, maybe we need to change the Constitution. But I think that these are all questions that we ought to be having. I think you two have raised a lot of really interesting points. And what strikes me about the narrative surrounding the Trump trial is like, well, of course you can do it. And then you're like, well, why? Well, why not? You have to be able to do this. And then period, end of story. And then there's no effort to kind of get beyond it and to examine the consequences. I, I mean, I would just note that that there is a, a certain irony that the Senate could have acted on the impeachment before Trump left office, but McConnell said, we're not going to take it up until after Trump left office. And then they said, well, it's in- unconstitutional. <laughs> but, you know, I, I think we should move on to talk about um, Hawley and Cruz and, and Marjorie Taylor Greene and, and think of 
about how this kind of disciplining effect works for for members of Congress separately from from the president. Right. And I think absolutely. And this is a great, I think, transition because impeachment, if we just think about it in terms of something that the people give it's a tool that people give their representatives to use against the president and federal officials, whether they're in office or, you know, even if you think they're out of office, doesn't matter that that fundamental relationship still there. The question becomes, well, what happens when you are a member of Congress? And what kind of behavior ought we to consider punishable or disciplinable, if that's even a word? And then how do we, and then what's the best way to go about it? And Cruz and Holly, the senators from Texas and Missouri, um, really upset a lot of their colleagues in the Senate when they, on January 6th, used procedures that were authorized in the Electoral Count Act of 1887 to force votes in relation to the state's electors and whether or not they should be counted when the House and Senate under the Constitution assembled to count the electors and to basically officially, I guess, declare that Joe Biden won the election. And my point, I think, in raising this is not necessarily to suggest that you know, to adjudicate the argument of whether or not the election was fraudulent. I don't think the election was fraudulent at all. But the question is, what are the implications of this? Because essentially now you have Democrats in the Senate and outside the Senate, but are trying to censure uh, Cruz and Hawley and going to the Ethics Committee. And the chambers have the authority to do this, of course, and they will have the authority to, to remove people from committees, which we'll soon discuss. It's not that they don't have the authority, but the questions are, how do they use that authority? Because as I see it, it seems that Holly and Cruz were using rules and procedures that were authorized by this law, by Congress, and that I don't know how you punish people for that. It doesn't mean that you have to agree with them. I don't know. Lee, help me think through this. What am I, what am I missing here? And what are the implications of this? Well, you know, I mean, we, we've had variations of this argument before, uh, which is, you know, so there are a lot of things that you can do that are within the rules, but you know this this gets back to this concept of forbearance, which you know takes us to the Levitsky and Ziblatt sort of master concepts of uh, you know forbearance and legitimate opposition, which I think are are coming up in in this particular moment in 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 very sharp relief. So okay, so in theory you can launch an objection. It's not illegal to do that, but there also is no basis for this. Cruz knows better. Holly knows better. I mean, these guys are Ivy League educated, super smart people who have clerked for, you know, justices. Um, you know, they know this is bullshit. So all they're trying to do here is undermine the opposition party, right? You know, they're just trying to create a sense that this this election was illegitimate when 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 they know better. Um you know, forbearance, sure. I mean, they can do it, but there, there's consequences to actions, you know, right? I mean, there's a lot of things that, that we can do that we don't do. I mean, it's not illegal, uh, but actions have consequences, right? And, you know, democracy relies on a, a sense that we all uh, are are playing by a sense of, of shared fairness, a sense that the rules are fair, free and fair elections, etc., and we can question that within within our we're in our we're in our rights to question that certainly, but th that questioning has deep consequences. 
uh, if it's done at the level that Holly and Cruz and others did it at uh, with, with absolutely no basis, right? You know, it's just seems to me that, you know, that, that, that should be out of bounds. Now, at least by my own personal standards. Now, what the Senate does, Senate has its own ethics board. The House has its own ethics board. They've expelled members in the past for corrupt behavior. Is this behavior corrupt? No, it's not corrupt in the in the sort of sense of like stashing, you know, uh, cash in your freezer that you took to promote some business interest abroad. Uh, but I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think this this actually poses a really hard problem because this behavior to me is fundamentally illiberal. It's fundamentally a threat to democracy. These people should know better. Uh, and what they're doing is incredibly dangerous. And yet, like, you know, once you start... What, what do you do? I mean, you know, in theory, you know, I, I, I mean, I, I would say that the Republican Party should disown these people or that, you know, that we, we should have a way for the Republicans who believe in the rule of law and are not stirring up shit just to, to kind of stir up shit to, to undermine uh, the, the faith in, in democracy. You know, th- there are folks who believe in, in, in playing by a fair set of rules and and respecting free and fair elections. And there's folks who don't. I mean, this is this is like, you know, fundamentally liberal stuff. This is undermining of democracy stuff. And I, I think that this is, a to me, this is where parties should come into play. And, and parties have a, an important role in determining uh, what are the, 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 the boundaries between what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. And to me, this is fundamentally a role that parties should be playing. And it's clear to me that the Republican Party has become a fundamentally liberal party uh, post-January uh, 6th by their reactions to to what, what happened and and uh, the role of many of their own members in supporting that. And you know, that, that, I think, creates a fundamental crisis in our democracy is that you can't have a two-party system in one in which one of the two parties has become fundamentally illiberal. Well, I don't know about you two, but I need to start keeping my cash in the freezer. Incidentally, it shows you how far we've come on the party side, too. I remember that you have a Democratic congressman from Louisiana keeping cash in a freezer, kind of corrupt practices here. The FBI raids his office during the Bush administration, and you have Republican and Democratic leadership come together and just are outraged at this violation of the of, of kind of the executive coming into the legislature's sphere and, and doing very, very questionable things. And it really shows you, I think, that wasn't too long ago. It shows you how far we've come. But Julia... Where do you keep your cash? Oh, I don't have any. Uh, my my freezer my freezer's full of weird stuff I've cooked during the pandemic. So I don't have any room for it in there. Um, in there, but yeah, I, I've been actually thinking a lot about that and also about Aaron Shock, who had to resign for kind of shady uh, campaign stuff and financial stuff. And I'm kind of like, these guys must be thinking, man, you know, I had to resign for this. But so I have a couple thoughts that I think sort of build on what what Lee was saying, and I think not to not to beat the impeachment horse, but this is what I'm writing about. And I think the same logic sort of applies to what is going on with the Senate censure question. And that is that these things that to tease sort of the hypothesis, the working hypothesis in the very drafty draft I'm working on is essentially that impeachment happens when we have a political moment where it's unclear what the what the f- informal rules are. 
um, and that we have this sort of we have this sort of unspoken script of informal rules. And I think that that's relevant to what's going on with with Cruz and Holly because there's this set of informal rules that date back really to the you know the the whole history of the country, but have become part of the the Republican script maybe since the 1980s or maybe going back to the late 60s. The Southern strategy of kind of adopting rhetoric that may you know maybe black votes are illegitimate. And I really don't mean that to be partisan. As I said, I think this is this has infected both parties in different ways at different times. And the Democrats, I think, are not totally innocent on this front. But I but that, again, is another podcast. But I do think that that we have to face the fact that that is part of the informal script. But that script is sort of very heavily buried most of the time. Um, and that that rhetoric could be used in a way that was, you know, dog whistled and not overt and not threatening to actual election results. And there, like, there was some of that, and I think notably mostly used by commentators who were not officially connected to the party or to the Romney campaign after the 2012 election. I, I published a book chapter with one of my grad students where we, this seemed very novel at the time, but we analyzed Twitter accounts um, and people like Michelle Malkin are sort of like, well, you know, of course Obama won. It's hard to compete with Santa Claus and like basically like call the voters dumb and easily bribable. And so that's like, you know, that discourse has been there. And then all of a sudden that discourse becomes part of the forefront. And this has been a big part of the theme of, of Trump and Republicans who have found Trump to be a kind of springboard for political opportunity like Cruz and Hawley. Where, you know, suddenly the dog whistle was a bullhorn. And I think that's really a critical part of, of questioning the 2020 election results. And as Lee points out, these two know better. They're smart. They know, they know intellectually what democratic values are. And they know that Trump's whole thing about the election being fraudulent was complete crap. Um, I want to really just also give Lee some space for the swearing he needs to do today and, and not, um, and not not step on his, his swearing toes. So I'm going to try to be, do less swearing. You know, the thing that I keep coming back to about that, and I don't, I don't know where this figures into the Senate's Senate ethics proceedings, because it's very, it's very tricky. It almost feels like one of those riddles about, you know, am I lying? You know, if I say yes, it's, you know, makes the riddle not true. You know what I'm talking about? Anyway, why did I start this? The liar's um, paradox. Yes. Thank you. The statement I, is false. Exactly. Yes. Thank you, Lee. I knew you would help be able to rescue me from my own tangent. So um, the thing with with the Cruz and Holly is like, if they really if they if we say for a moment, OK, you actually believed this. You were sincere. You thought the election was fraudulent or at least was worthy of, of concern and your objections to it were 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 genuine. Then on the one hand, like, I, I don't know that you can really fault anyone for that. Right. But on the other hand, that's a very destabilizing situation. And to pull that defense, they would have to sort of cop to a level of destabilization that I actually don't know that they're they're totally going to be comfortable with. Right. Their colleagues probably aren't. Um, On the other hand, then you have to say, oh, well, of course, you know, this we knew this was we knew this was bullshit and we were just doing it. You know, I'm just asking questions here. And then that to me becomes a violation of their constitutional oath. So that's, you know, to me, that is sort of the question is like, are they willing to really to say, no, we really, we are really willing to throw things into doubt. This was a sincere concern 
Or are you are you admitting that you violated your constitutional oath? That to me is sort of the the paradox of of the thing. I don't have any particular ideas about what the Senate should do about this, but I just think that's how I would frame the question. Yeah, I, I'm I'm fascinated by this, and I think there's a lot to to work through here. And, and on one hand, you can kind of argue, even if you take more of a crass political calculation argument that some people have made that Cruz and Holly are competing for Trump's voters. Um, they're doing this so that they can then participate in an election in 2024, as opposed to undermining an election. But I want to use this as a, as a kind of a springboard to kind of get at the deeper issue in this kind of Senate censure or disciplining senators, because it highlights the tensions between elections on one hand and parties and institutions on the other hand, when we think about disciplining bad behavior. This most obviously, I think, presents itself, this tension, in the question of expulsion, which is related to censure. And Congress has the authority to expel members, period, full stop, end of story. The question becomes, well, when ought it to use that authority and when ought it not to use that authority? And by kind of related question, when ought it to censure or not censure? And we can think back to Roy Moore, who is a very you know unsavory individual from Alabama, who is accused of uh, molesting children, and he's running in an election. The Republican Party is terrified of him to be in the Senate. And you have Republican senators coming out saying that they would they would vote to expel him if he won. And this is a very interesting thing because he's not in office. The voters haven't spoken yet. And if they do vote for him, for the Senate to turn around and expel him for behavior that occurred before, however distasteful and abhorrent, abhorrent that behavior is, before he w- became into office, that really it, it presents some challenging things. Or Al Franken, who uh, got caught up in all of this and did some things that are not very nice, and he um, he ultimately had to resign, and there was an effort to expel him because of things that occurred before he was in office. Or maybe, I forget, maybe it was while he was in office, but I thought it was before. But I guess the if voters, even in that case, if voters send somebody to the Congress, even after they've been expelled, it's generally understood that the Congress ought not then to expel that person anymore, that the voters have made their decision. They could keep expelling them in theory, I mean, but the voters have spoken. And, and, it, and I think that highlights this assumption in our system that the voters trump the parties and the institutions because ultimately the voters populate the parties and the institutions. And I think that gets to this bigger picture of how do we decide in a place like Congress, which is slightly different than I think the presidency and the courts, but how do we decide in a place like Congress, which is a which is itself a crucible of conflict, what is bad behavior, right? Where do we decide that? And can behavior inside of Congress, and this, you know, I have questions with the forbearance argument because, you know, ambition, counteracting ambition and all of that stuff. I, you know, I don't read a lot of forbearance there, although the framers certainly thought we should have statesmen and I think we should as well. Um, you know, the question is, can sanctioned procedures have the deleterious impact and undermine the institution so long as the people are committed to using those procedures in the very places where we want people to be arguing and making these decisions. And let's take a step back here. Congress, it's a venue and we have actors who go there to participate in a process and they use rules as leverage to try to achieve their goals and win. And if you even adopt some sort of, you know, the the Frank Baumgartner, Schott Schneider and status quo argument, proponents of the status quo 
don't want to change the status quo. If you want to change the status quo, you have to engage in outside the chamber type strategies. You have to punch up, not down. You have to do all kinds of different things to try to change the status quo. Proponents of the status quo try to silence opponents of the status quo. They don't want to have that argument. And, and they question the legitimacy of people who are trying to change the status quo. They try to suggest they ought not to be able to participate in the process. They point to the uncertain and terrifying consequences of what would happen if we did this and this crazy person got to then say these things. And again, it's not me necessarily saying that this we shouldn't ought not to punish people, but there there is a certain dynamic in our politics whereby outsiders are going to be more prone to if we all of a sudden see this like any kind of you know what I what if I want to offer an amendment that leads to you know McConnell getting primaried. And he loses his election and McConnell's got a lot of influence. Does that mean that McConnell can then say, well, that's a bad use of your amendment ability? First of all, nobody offers amendments anymore, but does that, that's a bad thing. And so therefore we're going to use the ethics committee to try to intimidate you to not offer that amendment. I mean, this is, I mean, there's a lot of really tricky things to kind of work through here. And with Marjorie Taylor Greene as well, the house, you know, the house has the authority to remove people from committees. They have the, they're the ones who put people on committees. Committees are an uh, are, uh, agent of the chamber. But the question I think gets into, well, one, why are we removing people from committees? And two, what are, what are, what are the consequences of not removing people from committees? Is our, you know, with Marjorie Taylor Greene, are we removing her from the, what, the budget committee because we're concerned she's going to use her immense power as a backbench minority member on the budget committee who has been ostracized internally by her party to somehow wreak havoc on our institution? Or are we removing her from the committee because we want to signal to our base and our voters that we think what she's saying is ridiculous and absurd? And I think that question matters. The same with the censure effort in the Senate. I think it matters because you know, you're, you all of a sudden are, are trying, this very quickly can lead to, you know, silencing. We're, we start silencing people because we, and we declare, we decide outside of Congress, outside of the deliberative process, outside of any kind of a kind of political context, we decide that what you say is bad. And so therefore, even though you're saying it inside the Congress, even though you're committed to the process by using the rules of that process, we decide that you are now undermining that process. And so therefore you no longer get to participate. And like, I don't know the answer to that question, but I do think it is a, it's a challenging question. You're, you're making a slippery slope argument, James, which is uh, as perhaps you, you, you know, is the, the weakest kind of, but it's argument. not a slippery slope. Like, I mean, well, the, the alien and sedition acts is yeah. a great example. Wait, of this. Wait, wait, the, I mean, wait. hold on. The alien and sedition acts is a great example of, of Congress and the height of federalist uh, partisan tensions, trying to silence its critics, the Jeffersonian Republicans to go back to impeachment, do the same thing with, with impeachment and judges and trying to decide and declare certain things and to use these tools to punish bad behavior as a way to silence. And the Southern segregationists have done it. People in all across this nation have done it in various times for various purposes. And it is, I think it's a concerning thing and it points to the very challenge of our system, which is how do you preserve that space for politics? Well, you preserve it by having certain boundaries, right? I mean, if if anything goes, then everything goes, and then you have no space, right? I mean, in order for I mean, you take any 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 game, right? You take football, right? You know, in order for for a game of football to work, is that there has to be certain rules that are enforced, and there are certain boundaries, right? If suddenly the team that scores a touchdown gets to decide 
you know, what the rules of the game are after they score a touchdown, you know, then the game goes goes to hell, right? So, I mean, but we like, don't but we don't have a board that sets our rules. Congress sets the rules inside Congress, not outside right. of Congress. Well, we need a referee right. in this podcast. Oh my god. <laughs> like you know, sure, but like if the rules are constantly changing, then there are no rules. If anything goes, then then everything goes. And, you know, like democracy depends on a certain set of there are certain boundaries, right? I mean, free speech is important, but there are limits to free speech. Inciting a riot uh, is not free speech. And, you know, I mean, that's that's been well, well, well argued over for many years. Right? You know, and, and right. I mean, these are not easy questions. That's why they're interesting. That's why we're, we're debating them. That's why we're struggling with them. But, you know, at a certain point, we have to say, look, you know, if we want to have a democracy, we need to have certain boundaries about what is and what is it not acceptable. Offering an amendment, that's acceptable. Trying to undermine the results of an election that that by every standard was free and fair and legitimate, I, I think that goes beyond the boundaries. But I, I don't know what to do with that. I, I don't, you know, I think, again, I come back to the sense that, that parties have an incredibly important gatekeeping role to play. I mean, the Republican Party should have kicked Marjorie Taylor Greene out. The Republican Party should kick Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz out. Uh, but, I mean, the Republican Party, as I said, has has gone, gone off the rails here uh, in not adhering to basic standards of democracy. And, you know, this, to me, is, is the existential crisis at the... the Heart of our democracy. So I'll I'll, I'll be quiet now, and, and I think we should should kind of wrap up. Yeah, point. and I, you know, just to take the, we'll wrap up, and I'll give Julia the last word. But you know, the the football analogy, and we don't, you know, the Congress ultimately makes its own rules. But even just to use that analogy, you know, it's like with Cruz and Holly, it's saying, okay, you you ran a play according to the rule book, but now we want to punish you for it. Because that play wasn't against any rule. It was it was actually sanctioned and authorized by the rule. Now, maybe in the NFL has changed its rules over time when it sees the deleterious effects of those rules in the past. And so now you can't like, you know, you have to tackle certain ways and all other kinds of things. Well, then, OK, but that's the conversation we have moving forward, not about punishing people who have used the rules that have been sanctioned and, and authorized. And, and, you know, and it just comes back to like, how do we decide these questions? And I agree with you. I think they are important questions. But and then where do we decide them? And the Congress, it's, you know, conflict in Congress isn't a bad thing in my book. It's a good thing, because if it's not in Congress, then it gets to bad thing. And I think the question is, do these types of things, these while certainly within the power of Congress to do, do they lead to a suppression over time of, of the idea that you can do things that the status quo and the majorities and the parties or however defined don't like? Or can you change or can you use things to upset, be a skunk at the garden party, if you will, right? And, and upset the apple cart to mix some metaphors here and ultimately have change because that is how you make change in this nation, and it is always the way it's been done. And everybody is seen who wants, I don't care if you're pushing for civil rights or women's suffrage or abolition, you are seen as a rabble rouser who is undermining democracy and undermining the system when you get started. And it is your ability to participate in politics. We need more politics, not less politics, I think. And that's where we're going to, I think that's the fundamental orienting fact of my thinking on this question. Okay. All right. I have, I have two things to say. One is I've been thinking a lot about 
this conversation we have a lot about politics because it occurred to me both in the course of watching the impeachment but also in the stuff that happened with marjorie taylor green last week that this is sort of this is non-politics right when you when you take out a weapon or you imply the use of a weapon you have you have removed yourself from politics and similarly if you know if, if there's no persuasion and there's no possibility that there's shifting ground in terms of the you know where political power and political incentives might lie it's not politics anymore. It's some. It's something else. And the other thing, I mean, I'm just. I think I'm just going back to the same things I've been saying about each of these processes, which I think is a common thread throughout. Is that in in thinking about whether the Republican Party should kick Marjorie Taylor Greene out, who is you know Marjorie Taylor Greene, who was duly elected, goes back to the to the central role that elections have been allowed to play, where essentially we have this question, I think this is what you're getting at, Lee, right? We have this question of, are there boundaries on what what's acceptable in our political discourse and kind of what can be in the in the liberal democratic political community? Um, and I'm using those terms in like the political theory sense. And you know, typically the only mechanism, the only procedure we have to decide that we don't give anyone the ability to be the arbiter of that. The only procedure we have to decide that is elections right now. And there there could potentially be other kind of checkpoints on that, on those boundaries, but there's just not. And until we change those sorts of norms, then, then you know, we're going to have a lot of people elected to the to Congress who I think run afoul of what some people consider to be, you know, acceptable within the, within the boundaries of, um, of liberal democratic discourse. And I think the the ultimate problem we face right now is that we don't really have a, any agreement on what the rules are or who adjudicates them. So it's not just, it's not just an institutional problem, but a kind of broader problem in, in democracy. So I'll, I'll, Leave us on that encouraging note. Well, that is a, a great way to end an, another episode of Politics in Question. Uh, thank you both for the, the spirited discussion. And Lee, don't worry, I would never vote to expel you from the Congress or kick you off of any committees. Thank you. Phew. Uh, Thanks for listening. Don't don't kick me off the podcast. Oh, that's right? th- that's this, impossible. This, you're a you're a you're a founder yes. of the podcast. I'm stuck with you. And Julia, we're and Julia could probably kick us both <laughs> off. Yes. But thank you all for listening. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. The show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute. And our producers are Elena Soros, Shannon Lynch, and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.